We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Rotowire NBA podcast. It is Tuesday, April 14th. We are back with another rewatch today. We're taking it back to 2004, the Western Conference semifinals. Game 7 between the Kings and the Timberwolves. We got peak KG, peak Brad Miller, weirdly peak Sam Cassell at age 34, definitively not peak Chris Webber, uh, but a fun game nonetheless and one that came down to the wire and sent Minnesota to its first ever conference final. There was a lot happening around the league at that time, the tail end of the Shaq and Kobe Lakers. T-Mac was about to leave the Magic. Hubie Brown was the reigning coach of the year. Uh, and of course, there are plenty of storylines pertaining to this series and this game specifically. So a lot to get to. I have Alex and James standing by. Let's dive in. Yeah, I just went out there and did what Swaggy P do. <laughs> Teammates played great, and we um, came out with the victory, you know? I'm just trying to really get my, my NBA 2K rating up. You know, it's 12.02 right now. If they want to fire me at 12.05, I'll go home and find something to do. I'll have a good day. All right, we have James Anderson, Alex Barutha on the line. We are back with our third NBA rewatch. We've done 2009 Nuggets Mavericks a couple weeks ago. Last week, we had 2006 Suns Lakers. Those are in the books. We now continue... Our gradual march back through the 2000s Western Conference playoffs, apparently, as we now go back to 2004, Game 7, second round between the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Sacramento Kings. This is Kevin Garnett's MVP year. The Wolves are in the second round for the first time ever. The Kings kind of trending in the opposite direction, uh, but still a very good team, uh, albeit with some aging talent. 
James, Alex, whoever wants to jump in, uh, what was your number one takeaway from from watching this game, which I think in my opinion might be the most exciting actual game that we've done so far? It was incredibly exciting. And for me, just the biggest takeaway was how good Kevin Garnett was and how bad his teammates were. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it it seems impossible watching this game that you could even put a you could even like surround Kevin Garnett with a bad team because he was able to do so much that you would think that even if you put competent players around him that you would get to the conference finals like almost every year. And um, but there were some really bad moments from his teammates, especially. I mean, I feel like Sam Cassell that must have been one of his worst Ooh. games like uh, of the season, if not his career. I felt like he. I mean, if you had not known who Sam Cassell was and how good of a season he was having in the regular season, you would have thought, like, who is this guy? Like, he is not good. But I know he was dealing with a back injury a lot of the game, or he had been dealing with a back injury. Yeah, well, let's jump yeah. right into Sam Cassell. I mean, I have I have plenty of notes on him. And this was, uh, uh, you know, they say early on a, a game where he was very banged up. They said he has a bad hip, a bad back, and somehow a ruptured eardrum on top of those two issues. So... You know, he's getting electrotherapy throughout the game. He's in and out getting his back worked on. He's clearly not 100%, but this was not a great Sam Cassell game. And I thought it was ironic because they kept harping on it on the telecast, like how banged up Sam Cassell is. And yet he didn't play as if he was limited whatsoever. Like he was, it seemed maybe even more aggressive than normal. It, yeah, he was, he was He was worst when it came to just like initiating offense. Like he just, he could not keep the ball. He just kept getting... Yeah, uh, the ball stolen from him. He kept throwing the ball away. Like I, I can't remember seeing an NBA point guard just struggle that much to just maintain possession of the ball <laughs> above the break. Yeah, exactly. I mean, his his shot selection was also pretty egregious at times. Um, he, I mean, there was one play where he ran like a pick and pop with Wally Zerbiak, who ended up like wide open for three, and Cassell either literally did not see him or completely ignored him. Like his his vision was pretty bad at times in this game, um, which is weird because this is a guy who, you know, he was averaging seven assists and three turnovers during the regular season. Like by all accounts, a great passer, and he he was clear something was off this game for sure. And probably not a huge stretch to say that a healthy Sam Cassell is the second best player on this team. Uh, I mean, like I remember at the time maybe thinking that Sprewell was the second best player on this team. Um, Probably one of those two, I guess you could debate, but like just the fact that that player was at least a top three player on this team really kind of speaks to the complete lack of talent around KG. Well, Sam Cassell at age 34, I mean, he is on by far the back end of his career at this point. You know, I, I think he probably peaked in the mid 90s as a key member uh, of those back to back uh, Houston Rockets teams. That was early in his career. I mean, he came in as a 24-year-old rookie and, and and was a major contributor for both of those Rockets teams right away. Kind of bounces around. He's in Phoenix. He's in Dallas. He's in New Jersey. Uh, he's part of that Milwaukee team uh, that makes a run to the Eastern Conference Finals a couple of years earlier. And he ends up landing in Minnesota in 2003 and out of nowhere has the best year of his entire career. I mean, he was, he was an all-star for the first time at age 34. He's a second-team All-NBA player. This year, uh, I mean, never, never in his career was he anywhere remotely close to making all NBA and then out of nowhere at age 34 just pops up on the second team. So that's a, I, I don't know who the other options for, were, but that had to have been 
like really strongly related to the fact that this team got the one seed out West, right? Like, and they just wanted to reward a second player from that Timberwolves team because there's, there's absolutely no way he was one of the 10 best players in the league this year. No, no, certainly not. Um, and I, I think this goes back a little bit to what we talked about on the last podcast where there was just kind of this dearth of, of talent at this time where someone like Sam Cassell could be, you know, a second team, all NBA player. The, the second team that year was Cassell, T-Mac, Peja, Ben Wallace, Jermaine O'Neal. First team was, you know, basically the, the classic first team of the early 2000s. Kidd, Kobe, Duncan, Garnett, Shaq. You know, no questions there. But then you look at the third team, Metal World Peace, Baron Davis, Michael Red, Yao Ming, Dirk Nowitzki. At least three of those guys are extremely borderline. So I, I think we are at a point where... You know, the mellow LeBron, Wade, Bosch class was still, you know, they were rookies this year. They were still very much uh, in their infancy, kind of on their way up in terms of the NBA hierarchy. So there, there just weren't that many great players. You know, a lot of the great guys from the mid to late 90s, you know, Peyton, Malone, those guys were at the, the way tail end of their careers. Um, there was just kind of this gap where, where these type of players could make all NBA teams. But you look at the numbers that Sam Cassell put up, and you do have to account for the fact that as we now get 15 years in the past, you know, pace is is such a huge differentiating factor between these games and what we watch today. But I mean, 19 points, seven assists, three rebounds, shooting just under 40 percent from three, 49 percent from the field. Those are very strong, solid point guard numbers. Those, those are not second team all NBA numbers. I mean, his. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, his, you know, all of his advanced stats, I'm doing like a quick sweep on basketball reference are like really good. But I also assume he was in the lineup with Garnett a ton, and they obviously won, you know, they won a ton of games, top of the West. Um, but he was like, you know, he was fourth in total win shares, like fifth in win shares per 48 minutes. You can go down the line, like Vorp is really good. It's eighth in the league. So, mm-hmm. I mean, he had a great year, but I agree. There's, I, I think in modern times, you may not have, you may not have. Not, not only, well, like, you know, I think we're going to talk a lot about Kevin Garnett and this season and this game, but like, I mean, he was an amazing, like, all-time level player this season. Uh, but I mean, if you just look at who, I think part of those advanced stats, you look at the rest of the players on this team, I'm sure whenever Sam Cassell was off the floor, like, who was <laughs> who was bringing the ball up? I mean, we're, we're not talking about uh, a deep a deep team. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was really, really, really ugly, uh, in terms of who the second guard backup guards were. So I, I think that probably played a pretty big role in those advanced stuff. This has kind of been a theme through a, a lot of these games that we've watched, like the lack of depth. And I, I always kind of find myself wondering, is it just because we don't remember some of these guys? Whereas, you know, we might know the ninth or 10th man on just about every team in the NBA right now. And, and those names are familiar. So they don't seem all that obscure, but I mean, there were, there were some names in this game, like, like you said, I mean, Kevin Garnett essentially plays the entire game because he has to. And, you know, you look at this Minnesota bench and it is, it is extremely, extremely bleak. Like you said, we saw a lot of Fred Hoiberg minutes probably should not have been on the court late uh, when he was, um, we saw some Gary Trent minutes. We, we saw plenty of Irvin Johnson and it's kind of the same story for Sacramento, who is without Anthony Peeler, the former Minnesota Timberwolf, who is suspended for this game and would have been suspended for the next game had had Sacramento won for elbowing Kevin Garnett multiple times in game six. I went back and watched the video. Very much legitimate. Caught him, caught him both in the head and in the abdomen uh, very clearly. So a well-deserved suspension for him. And that, that basically eliminates 
seemingly the Kings' only backup guard, and they're they're forced to play Rodney Buford, who I I James, maybe you have a better memory of this guy. I had never heard of Rodney Buford before this game. I remembered him. I mean, I I needed to watch this game to remember him, but uh, yeah, if you just said who was Rod- Rodney Buford before this game, I would have been like, eh. But yeah, no, I, I remembered him once I started watching the game. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> where where do you want to go with? I mean, do you want to keep just talking junk about how bad KG's teammates were? Because I've got a lot of notes on that. I've got a lot of notes <laughs> on how good KG was. Let me set the scene a little bit to to establish kind of what, what's going on as we enter this game. So it's game seven, of course, in Minnesota. Series is tied 3-3. King stayed alive with a blowout home win, 104-87 in game six. I think it, it goes without saying that this is the best Timberwolves team ever. 58-24 and 24 in the regular season. That's by far the best record in franchise history. Uh, they're the top seed in the Western Conference, a, a very strong and deep Western Conference at this point. And this is the first year that they've ever, in franchise history, gone beyond the first round in the playoffs. So I guess I didn't really realize until looking at this how many times KG had tried and failed to get out of the first round. Seven straight first round exits for for the Timberwolves and obviously for Garnett going into this. So it, it, they never kind of explicitly say it on the telecast, but you can tell this is this is a big time like prove it reputation game for KG, especially since he's just won the MVP Earlier in the playoffs, it was handed out to him. And I think there was still quite a bit of doubt as to, you know, whether he was singularly good enough to drag a team that even though it didn't have the greatest supporting cast, you know, I think when you fail seven times in a row, people just wanted to see it, you know, and see him get out of the first round, which at this point he had done. They, they beat Denver in round one and, and KG averaged 26, 15, seven assists, two blocks, one steal for that series. So there's really no question about KG showing up, but I think that there were there were still questions about him doing it in a, in a do-or-die Game 7 against the Kings team that at that point had had more success uh, than Minnesota in the playoffs. I guess we'd have, I'd, we'd have to go back and watch a bunch of those games, a bunch of the elimination games, but just based on this game, I cannot imagine those exits being KG's fault, especially like the recent exits, like maybe when he was like uh, really, really early in his career, he wasn't quite at that level, but... Uh, I mean, he really could not have done more to help his team win this game, and it, it stayed a pretty close game uh, yeah. because the Kings, the Kings just had so much more depth, uh, top to bottom. And um, I mean, I, I just, I, I didn't really remember at the time just sort of how much he had to drag this team and how how little of a collaborative effort it was. I mean, I, I think this was kind of almost a, a worse version of like the worst LeBron Cavs type of team that you could come up with because not only was were his teammates just absolutely dreadful, but he, as a big man, couldn't just, you know, run the entire offense through himself, right? Like he mm-hmm. had, he was kind of reliant on his teammates to take advantage of when he would just get immediately double teamed and stuff like that. And they just kept missing open layups after he'd get double teamed. And it was just really, uh, stunning to just see a a team where every other player was playing like really really poorly for the majority of the game and yet they still win in this second round matchup against a really good team just because of how amazing the one player was it it seems kind of impossible looking back to think that his numbers were like empty calories you don't you know like before this series or i should say before this year in the playoffs for kg he was in the postseason he was basically averaging 
21 and 13 with five assists and like three combined steals and blocks, you know, on efficient shooting. I, it's, I don't know how you can, you know, say that someone's not, you know, like that person's not getting it done. I think at, at a certain point, you obviously have to look at like supporting cast, but I think every, you know, every star player who gets stopped like two or three times in the first round or gets swept in the second round like that, you know, people start asking questions. I think, I think it happens to, to every great player at some point if, if they don't succeed right off the bat. I think you're right, though, James, that it is different for a big man. It, it's a little bit different when you're comparing Garnett to someone like Tracy McGrady, who was kind of in a similar situation for, for much of his early career. And James Harden, to some degree, you know, he, he never really struggled to get out of the first round. But but more beyond that, even Kobe, you know, after Shaq left, I think faced some similar questions. It's different when you when you're seeing one guy handle the ball all the time, take a ton of shots, you know, be be basically responsible for what happens. Whereas with KG, one of the notes I made is he was comfortable like getting the ball and going in transition. But at the same time, you could see he didn't, he didn't really want to do that unless there was really an opportunity. Like he was never going to, Yeah. I think he had what he had 21 rebounds in this game. And he was never just like, I got the ball waving guys off. I'm going to bring it up. You know, it was, he's relying on people to get him the ball in his spots. And he was an incredible scorer in the half court. I mean, maybe, maybe the best in the league during this season. And he has a couple stretches in this game where he's just completely unstoppable uh, in the half court. But yeah, I mean, he's he's still relying at the end of the day on Sam Cassell getting the ball over half court, which for most of this game is like a 50-50 proposition. And I, I do think, James, there's a little more talent on this Timberwolves team than some of those Cavs teams. Like the Cavs never had a second team All-NBA guy, even if it was kind of a weird one-off season. But the talent doesn't fit very well. That's for sure. I mean, I, well, I don't think I, I, there's there's like not a lot of you're not running like pick and rolls with Kevin Garnett. It's just a lot of one on one, a lot of poor shots. Uh, this, this is the game that of the three we've watched. I think the shot selection really stuck out to be the most as being unbelievably questionable. My case for it being worse than those Cavs teams is that uh, they were playing, they were giving Irvin Johnson, Mark Madsen, and Gary Trent minutes, like period. Like they were just giving them minutes and they were giving them uh, at least Irvin and at least Madsen got double digit minutes in this game. And like, when you're playing someone that's just that bad at basketball, like no, the Cavs never played someone who is that is that utterly terrible at basketball, and that's just such a a glaring weak spot when uh, you have a player like that on the court at all times. Probably sometimes they they might have had a couple of those guys on the court at, at multiple times. I mean, it was just I, I can't remember seeing that many missed layups in a playoff game, really ever. I mean, it it was really baffling stuff. Irvin was awful like his his he you could literally not trust him to shoot the ball and like he he took a few shots that looked like he was someone who had never played basketball before like the the form on it it was horrible do you guys remember the play uh it was very early in the game it's my very first note Irvin Johnson has this hilarious double miss where he oh yeah gets gets his own (laughs) rebound and like kind of sort of falls over as he gets his second attempt up and that doesn't go in either. And you can hear Doug Collins laugh quick. He quickly laughs into his microphone and then like catches himself. Like it was so funny that the announcer laughed at how bad yeah. it was. I, I can never remember that happening in an NBA game. 
A lot of nervous energy in this game. And that's what you would expect. That's why they're not shooting well, and there's a lot of turnovers. They'll settle down. It's Johnson from point-blank range. <laughs> Twice he has a shot at it. Minnesota has missed their last seven shots of the game. Yeah, I had the exact same note in my notes. I, I have I laughed out loud at Irvin Johnson's first two field goal attempts. And this this guy was the starting center. You know, we're, I, I guess maybe I can agree with you on that, James, where the Cavs weren't starting anybody this bad. Like he, he, Irvin Johnson's the guy you should be bringing in that you hope you can survive for the eight minutes he's out there. He played 29 minutes in this game. Yeah, I, mean that, I, think, I think KG would have been okay playing with Big Z. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And it is worth pointing out, Troy Hudson uh, was with the Wolves this year. He was hurt. Uh, only ended up playing in 29 games. The previous season, he averaged 33 minutes a game, 14 points, six assists, two rebounds. So he was a, a primary contributor uh, that they didn't have available. Wally Zerbiak, weirdly, they never really touch on this. I had to do kind of go back and, and research what the story was. He's clearly not himself in this game. Um, you know, just just kind of looks a little bit limited. And he too was was battling injuries throughout the entire season. He he had a foot injury that cost him more than half of the regular season. He didn't make his regular season debut until just after the All-Star break. And then in the first round against Denver, he fractures multiple vertebrae in his back and ends up missing six games. So this is only his third game back from the injury. And he played limited minutes in his first couple of games. He ended up giving them some pretty good minutes. But, you know, I, I think maybe this this Wolves roster is a little more talented if everyone is healthy. I mean, Wally Zerbiak is a guy who did make an All-Star team. But, you know, at this point in his career, he's also not at his absolute peak. He, he had made that all-star team two years earlier. Yeah, it's, it, it seems like, I mean, because normally you would want to play Wally Zerbiak over like Trenton Hassel. Like there's, no, you know, in a, in a normal so. scenario. Yeah, <laughs> in a normal scenario, I mean, you would think Zerbiak would be getting like 35 minutes in this game. Right. I mean, so like I said, two years ago, he's an all-star. He's averaging 38 minutes a game, 19 points, five rebounds, three assists, shot 51% from the field and 46% from three. So, I mean, I, that, that's, a, that's a guy that, if he's healthy, is a, a complete game changer for Minnesota. Yeah, and it, it's it's tough to I, – yeah, I don't want to just get stuck um, really, really overestimating uh, just how much this game encomp- encompassed, like, all the KG teams that he had. But, yeah, um, I mean, uh, he was playing at a level – like, I, I think – that, like Nate Duncan and John Hollinger just did a podcast where they were talking about the best all time seasons, and they mentioned this season like in the very, very, very top top tier, and I, and I totally get it because he was just an app like he was a defensive player of the year caliber force on that end of the court. He could have probably guarded one through five at that at that stage in his career. I mean, he was just mm-hmm. such a such a problem on that end of the court, and then offensively, I mean he was he was peak of his powers as well i think he's the type of guy like this this version of kg 0304 if i were just building a team like a starting five for any era i would want this version of kg as either my four or my five probably my four um just because you could put any type of player around him and he probably wasn't even maximized uh based on just the, the lack of uh three-point shooting uh being stressed at that at that time i mean i think kg could have become at least a a guy that could stretch from the corners that that just was never emphasized at any stage of his career so he just didn't develop it but um that's really the only part of his game that he doesn't have and it was just really really awesome to watch uh 
you know, he, he had a, at a point, he had eight points. I remember it was like the, it might've been early second quarter. He had eight points and I was just blown away at how he'd probably made like 10 of the 12 best plays of the game so far. And he only had the eight points, but he was just impacting the game in, in every single way. Defensively, he had a couple massive blocks in this game. Uh, one of which we'll get to, you know, that, that really, um, really helped seal the game for Minnesota with, with under five seconds left on Brad Miller. But a, a couple of, like, take your breath away, how is that not a goaltend type of blocks? And then you run it back, and, you know, he's he's just meeting the ball at his absolute apex. I mean, he he had a couple that are off the glass. He has one where, I think this was in the third quarter, maybe early fourth, where Peja Stojakovic gets an offensive rebound and, and goes back up, and he probably gets fouled on the way up by, I think it was Hoiberg, across the arm, but he still gets the shot up and KG just catches it out of midair and it goes the other way. And he was an absolute monster. And like I said, it seemed like he never came out of the game. I mean, he, they, they remark on the broadcast multiple times about how tired he looks. Um, but I didn't really see it. You know, I guess if you're, if you're sitting courtside and looking at his face and watching in between plays, maybe you have a better view of that. But I mean, it seemed like he was pedal to the metal on both ends every single second he was on the court. I mean, if, <laughs> if anyone looked tired in this game, it was Chris Weber. Oh, who man. spent like the entire game like leaning on Kevin Garnett to like help him stand up. Uh, I didn't realize like I, I watched this game and like I I guess I didn't realize how quickly like Chris Weber's athleticism fell off. I think he he must have been dealing with some injuries or something prior to yeah. this. Right. Because he he was like not he, had, he actually had a couple good moves on KG. I think he scored on mm-hmm. KG like three times off some nice like post up and and drives, but like he, he looked like out of shape and not good at all. He, I mean, I, I was hurting just watching him play. Yeah. I mean, he was basically kind of playing a old man at the Y style, big man game and was still at times like the second best player on the court. <laughs> like it was oh, yeah, really, right. um, it was really, really, uh, fascinating to just see him hobbling around and just he had all those old man moves and was able to bury that that 18 footer from the top of the key pretty easily so uh i mean props to him for gutting it out he also had a he had a missed layup that played pretty heavily Ooh. into the the outcome of the game um and that he got fouled. he got fouled. Just... <laughs> yeah i mean it c-web c-web uh, has had a, a pretty wild career but uh it's a shame that he was mm-hmm. this immobile at this point Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When you're looking for a credit card, get one that wins awards. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best of Awards winner for Best 0% Intro APR and Balance Transfer Credit Card. It provides a great way to pay for large purchases over time, as well as consolidating other card balances. And speaking of award winners, the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best Credit Card for Dining Out or Ordering In. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. Get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. If you're into cash back or travel rewards, U.S. Bank has credit cards that feature those benefits too. Check out their full suite of credit cards at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Inc., and the cards are available to United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. So a little more background on the Kings. They're the four seed this year. They finished 55 and 27 um fourth straight 50 plus win season for sacramento but it, when you when you kind of look at the trajectory of this roster the age of some of the guys uh vlada Dibak, you know in particular looks really really old in this game and, and chris weber like you mentioned i think the kings probably peaked in 
2001, 2002. That's the year with the, the controversial series in the West Finals against the Lakers. They won 61 games that year, 59 the next year, and then this season they're down to 55. So still a very good team, uh, but a team that, that's a little bit on the decline and, and a little bit past its prime. They beat Dallas in five games in round one, huge Mike Bibby series. Um, but like you alluded to, Alex, like Chris Webber was this was the first year that he was really no longer Chris Webber. And and from here on, it was a, a pretty steep drop off. I mean, they end up trading him to Philly the following season. Uh, he winds up in Detroit the year after that. And he's out of the league uh, pretty much by the end of the 06, 07 season. He had a, a very sad nine game run with the Warriors in 07, 08. Um, but he's virtually out of the league three years after this game. And he had torn his ACL the previous postseason. So he's, he's still rehabbing from that. I mean, this was long enough ago that, you know, a guy when he's 30, 31 tears his ACL, that that's kind of it for him. And that's, that's certainly uh, borne out in the way that he's moving in this game. Um, I mean, it was, I, I'm with you, James. It, it was at times painful to watch him run. I mean, especially knowing what C-Web looked like a year prior and for the first 10 years of his career and even going back to his career at Michigan. Like, I mean, he is a absolute complete shell of himself. And I, I'm not sure I've seen another example of that recently that, that I can remember a player just looking that hobbled compared to his peak self. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I can't really... I mean, I mean, I maybe, guess like, I, maybe like Isaiah Thomas, like from a couple of years ago, like yeah. going from MVP candidate to one of the worst players in the league in about 12 months. Yeah. Like that's... That's pretty bad, but uh, that's that's true. But I feel like Isaiah didn't really look different. Like the results, it, shots just weren't falling for him. You know, I guess it, it's kind of tough to tell the difference between like he had clearly lost a step in terms of his quickness, but he didn't really look like he was in pain. Like Chris Webber at times looks like he shouldn't even be playing basketball. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you could probably find. Yeah, I was gonna say maybe like late career Bill Walton. Like I wasn't really watching those games. I didn't. I, was, I didn't watch a ton of him in the seventies. Like, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought. <laughs> I thought Cade or uh, C-Web, obviously, you could tell just sort of they kept flashing of the Maloof brothers, like the King's owners and like Jeff Petrie. And like you could just sort of tell from the vibe at the end of this game that this was kind of the end of the road for this King's team. And, and they had a really fun run. Like those those early 2000s King's teams were, were a lot of fun to watch and going from Jason Williams to Mike Bibby and like mm-hmm. you know, just a lot of a lot of kind of unsung heroes on those teams. But yeah, you could kind of tell this was sort of a knockout blow for them. At one point during the game, I think Weber misses a shot around the rim. Like, I can't remember who said it, but one of the announcers just says, like, can't hit shots around the rim like he used to. And at that point, I had to check Chris Weber's age. Like, I had to double check. I'm like, wait, like, what are we talking about here? He's 30. Like, I know he's coming off the injury, but the way they, the way they were so, like, uh, decisive about it, like, it made it seem like they knew it was over. Like very yeah. immediately, they're like, you just can't do this anymore. Well, there, it didn't seem like there was a sense of he'll be back next year or he's still working his way back. It was like, this is just who he is now, even yeah. though he's less than a year removed from tearing his ACL. Uh, so that was that was very sad to watch. Like like I mentioned, he was traded um, at uh, right around the All-Star break in 2005 to Philadelphia. And the players involved in this deal kind of set the scene for what his value was at that point. So he goes to, to Philadelphia with Matt Barnes and Michael Bradley in exchange for Brian Skinner, Kenny Thomas, and Corliss Williamson. Oh, wow. So that's that's what you're getting for Chris Weber in 2005. Yikes. Elsewhere on this Kings roster, Mike Bibby, never an all-star, which I was a little bit surprised to learn. You'd think he would have snuck into one, um, you know, but had a pretty nice first 10 years of his career. Another guy who, due in part to injuries, just, just ended up falling off pretty quickly uh, once we get to the mid-2000s. But 
uh, a guy who had a, a really nice career and is probably a little bit underrated, uh, especially in his early years. This was also basically the end for Vlade Divac, who, like I mentioned, isn't really a factor in this game. Uh, was, of course, a, a major figure for those great Kings teams around the millennium. But at this point, he's in his age 35 season. He still started and played 81 games this year. And he he had a five-year span from, from 99 all the way through this season in 04, where he played and started at least 80 games in five straight years. So he's pretty much completely spent at this point. He ends up uh, signing with the Lakers for 15 games uh, the following season and, and retires after that. So this is kind of the last meaningful game of Vlade Divac's career. And then we have Pedro Stojakovic, who is at his absolute peak this season. Um, you know, I, I think it was it went from being Chris Webber's team undoubtedly earlier in the decade to this is a year where with Weber hobbled, you know, Peja really takes a step up. He averages 24.2 points per game. That's second in the NBA. He leads the league in made threes by a huge margin. He leads the league in free throw percentage, 93%. Second team, all NBA. He gets some MVP votes. He's second in the league in scoring. You know, he's just, I, I usually remember him, I guess, as a little bit more of a role player, but this is kind of the one year of his career where he really was considered, you know, maybe not a number one option, but is it fair to say, James, that he was kind of a, a Clay Thompson of his time? Um, yeah, I mean, some something like that. I mean, I, I, I thought he played. One of the reasons I was so excited to watch this game was just because I, I feel like Page is one of the more like underrated players from this this era, uh, the two thousands, basically. Uh, he, you know, you just look at his free or his uh, three point percentages, like. 40 percent 41% 38% 43% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40% 40
I'm assuming just because they had Ray Allen. Like at this point in NBA history, having Peja and having Ray Allen just like locked you into the top two in three point percentage. Yeah, and and I think that that also makes it easier when you're when like each team just has like oh he's our three point shooting guy. Like yeah, it's so much easier to take that guy out like in a playoff setting like like this where it's just like all right just stay home and page it don't ever leave him don't let him shoot any threes like yeah. that's a lot easier to do when you only have to worry about one or two of those guys per team mm-hmm. so page uh one more stat on him he's second in the league in win shares this season behind only kevin garnett um and the, like i said he's first in three-pointers made by a mile the the other four in order in made three-pointers this season were baron davis eddie jones tracy mcgrady and jamal crawford Yikes. Uh, yike, yikes in a good way? Yeah. <laughs> Crawford, yeah. man. Is it possible to say yikes in, a, in like a, a positive tone? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 like, I like all those guys. I don't know what, I don't know what you're complaining about. It, it really pains me to say this because this was probably the absolute peak of my Tracy McGrady fandom. I think this was probably the year that – one there was one birthday where I received three different Tracy McGrady jerseys from various family <laughs> members. I think this was the year. Tracy McGrady's magic this season started the year 1-19. One and 19. And he goes on to lead the league in scoring that year. Could you imagine if that happened now? That w- this, this would be like the Rockets going, you know, one and 19 over their first 20 games with James Harden averaging 35. That's basically what T-Mac was doing this year. And of course, he leaves for Houston this following summer. That's pretty wild. Uh, I didn't realize they bottomed out like that. that yeah, hard. you would think like the the quality of talent in the league, like when you're reading off those all-NBA teams, right. you would think if, if at any point, just a one-man show could carry uh, a bunch of bad players into, into like the eight seed or something. You'd think it would be right. a setting like T-Mac in Orlando. Oh, I have one more note on bad players, by the way. So to get to round two, Minnesota beats Denver in five games. Can you guess who led the Nuggets in scoring in that series? This was Melo's rookie year. This is somebody you'll definitely know, James. I, I believe he's a gopher, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, um, uh, I, I, I'm going to kick myself when you, when you give it to me. Vashawn Leonard. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sean Leonard led the Dallas or the Denver Nuggets in scoring in an entire playoff series. I told you that we were, we were talking about maybe watching that one Nuggets game a few weeks ago. I told you the first play had me hooked because uh, Bashan Leonard took a contested ball away 18-footer uh, in the first play of the game. <laughs> well, I mean, he won at least one three-point contest, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was, one, he was definitely, like, I remember playing, like, NBA Live, like, in the 90s and yeah and stuff and like he would just be the guy where you'd want him on your team just so you could shoot threes with him um so i've i've another note on bad players like we we have to talk a little bit about just how bad mark madsen was uh yes. we we already we kind of talked about Irvin johnson a little bit um but mark madsen like the worst uh combination of tries really hard and is terrible so like you <laughs> You have him just out hustling everyone, basically, other than KG, and yet just like sucking so hard that it's just like you got to take like Flip Saunders. Your job is to just sort of put an end to this this nonsense of of Mark Madsen being out there on the court in this game. Like I don't really care who you go to. You go to Gary Trent, who missed a wide open layup at the end of the third quarter. 
like he would still probably be a better option because at least Gary Trent's not getting open and then KG's hitting him with like wide open should be assists and then he's missing them. Like Madsen just kept getting open and then fumbling the ball out of bounds. Yeah, I don't uh I don't think Mark Madsen was uh ready for the moment. <laughs> I didn't get that impression either, Alex. <laughs> he was we he was need- hyped up he was hyped up enough for the moment, but but talent wise too hyped for the moment. He was we, too did- hyped. Too hyped. we do need to touch on Gary Trent, who uh, the only note I have on him uh, on my sheet is Gary Trent, what a tank. Absolute tank. Like he he reminds me of if if you guys played basketball video games in the two thousands. When you could choose, there were only three body styles. It was like skinny, athletic, or or bulky. And the bulky one just looked absolutely absurd. And I was like, who are they modeling this after? I think they modeled it after Gary Trent. <laughs> See, I what what I thought of when I saw Gary Trent was when we play like rec rec league basketball, and like there usually be like one team per league that just has a guy who's like six five, six six, super super out of shape, probably played mm-hmm. in college a little bit is kind of like the the hub and the post like sure it looks like they found gary trent at the y like it looks like they were like we need to have options in case we can't play madsen and right. so they just went and found a guy at the local y so he was a prolific player in college as, as a sophomore at the university of ohio he averaged 25 and 11 with two assists as a junior 23 and 13 with two and a half assists and, and over a block per game in each season his official nickname at the time was the Shack of the Mac. <laughs> That's, That's perfect. Great. That's awesome. Yeah, and obviously he has a son now. Who is, is Gary Trent still with the Blazers? Is that right? Yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a great three-point shooter. Yeah, yeah, literally the complete opposite player of his dad. <laughs> um, Gary, Trent's got, Gary, Gary Trent Jr. is actually he's got some size on him though. Surprisingly, he's uh, yeah, like, you can so you can tell you see where he got it. Exactly. I know exactly the play you're talking about too, James, where, it, uh, again, you don't, you don't see this often in, in modern NBA, but this is the second straight game we've seen where announcers are openly complaining about how bad players are. Like, I, Doug Collins just could not believe that he missed that layup. Well, Minnesota should have the lead unless they turn the ball over here. Trent. Oh! How do you miss that layup? What a comeback. By the Sacramento Kings, Trent missing right underneath. Yeah, well, it, it was appalling. Like I, I, it was. I was appalled, and and uh, it's just you. Can you imagine if the Timberwolves had like lost this game and just how yeah. poorly you would feel for KG? Because, and I, I got to give him props. Like they they reported uh, Cheryl Miller, who I also have a note on. Um, yeah, she we'll reported from from one of the huddles like. KG and and Sam Cassell are, are yelling at these guys that they have to make their layups. I mean, I would not have faulted KG like after this game if they'd lost, if he just like kicked the crap out of Gary Trent and Irvin Johnson and Mark Madsen. Like, I don't know how he was keeping his cool. I would have just been going insane. But then I thought like KG's so used to this. If ever there was a guy that was so used to playing with terrible teammates, like at this stage in his career, I mean, he, he was probably just 10 times better than everyone on his high school team, and he and he's probably been 10 times better than pretty much everyone on his NBA teams uh, up until right. this point. So he's he's got enough experience with this happening to, to keep his cool, but I just I would have just been losing my mind if I was him. I was particularly struck by, after the miss by Trent, he just jogs back. It was right at the end of a quarter, 
and he just jogs to the bench. Like does doesn't look doesn't look remotely like if you miss him like that, wouldn't you just be like dismayed? That's what I. That's what kept pissing me off about Madsen too. Is these guys would just make terrible plays and then at, at least have the heart to just look really upset with yourself, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. It just looked like he expected to miss it, and I think maybe that right. was exactly what happened. Like I don't think anyone, you know, he that's a fifty-fifty shot for him. Apparently. <laughs> All right. Do you guys want to go to the the TV presentation or to get into the game itself? I don't. I don't have a ton of notes on the TV presentation. So if you have stuff that you want to get off your chest, I've I've a couple quick notes. Um, so I love Kevin Harlan. I think he's one of the best play by play guys in any sport. Uh, very versatile. This was not a great game for, for Kevin Harlan. Like several times in one game getting calling someone by the wrong name uh that's that's kind of annoying to me as as the play-by-play guy you gotta gotta get the names right and then uh i just my note on my note on uh cheryl miller is just that she was she was really zany in this one like she she just had a lot of a lot of zany moments i i was particularly i baffled i guess by her outfit she she looked like she was a waiter for the people sitting courtside like the, it was like a suit, <laughs> yeah. suit yeah. jacket tuxedo yeah, yeah. yeah i i was a little she did a great job as an analyst but i i really couldn't take my eyes off that outfit um but like you said alex there wasn't a ton from this game james weirdly enough i had the exact same note on harlan he i, I said that he he looked subdued like he just wasn't he just wasn't there you know there, there were no like crazy Kevin Harlan calls that we're used to you know even in like the biggest moments of the game he he gave like a b-level call and it led me to wonder like has he gotten more has he gotten more enthusiastic as the years have gone on is just as who he was back then or was it just an off night for him might have just been an off night I, I don't remember like I always pretty much remember thinking that he's been good so I I, yeah. I don't know I, I don't really I think he he's earned the right to kind of get a, a pass on this one but Sure. Uh, there was a, there was also a moment where he said another great play by Mark Madsen, like uh, on a play that wasn't even that great. And I couldn't remember a previous good play from Mark Madsen. So he just had a weird hype call on Mark Madsen that, that did not endear himself to me. Mark Madsen is absolutely the Ronnie Turioff of this game. <laughs> yeah, like a, a poor man's Ronnie Turioff. Right. Uh, the only other thing I have, um, in terms of presentation is late in the game, they went to, I don't even know what, what this cam was. It was clearly some sort of experimental decision by the producer, but there was a key inbounds where Brad Miller's taking the ball out on the sideline and the camera is positioned as if it's sitting on his shoulder. Like, it, and it's like shaking. Like, it's almost like they, they planted a GoPro like on, on Brad Miller's back. And it was just, it was just a really weird angle. And at, at the bottom of the shot, it's like zoomed in on this bizarre, what looks like kind of like a longhorn skull tattoo on Brad Miller's back. And like, I just found myself focusing on that as opposed to the game. And they, they never used it the rest of the game. It was just a, just like a one and done kind of like something that it was like a cam that you'd use in like the X games. <laughs> just trying to get the intensity of the moment. Yeah. There were, oh, one there were a lot of weird camera angles. Like, I mean, that, that was definitely, this was part of the era where they were, uh, experimenting, I think a little bit. And, um, Thankfully, they've they've kind of trimmed that out of the out of the broadcast these days. 
They have. I, I have a section on, and this kind of relates to the presentation to some degree, some of the cameos that we saw in this game. And this isn't Staples Center. So we, we really don't have the like celebrities or anything like that. Uh, so, so most of the cameos I focused on were players because there were so many obscure players, mo- many of which we haven't even hit on yet. And I feel like we've touched on several. Um, Rodney Buford, you know, we, we hit on early on. He checks in for Bibby after his second foul. Uh, like I said, I don't remember this guy whatsoever, but according to basketball reference, he's known as the Sheriff. Does that ring a bell, James? No, no. But that doesn't mean it's not true because most uh, basketball reference nicknames don't ring a bell for me. Right. Well, we had we had Mark Madsen guarding Brad Miller for, for much of this game when he was in there. And, and we've talked a lot about Brad Miller already, but we have not noted that he's a two-time All-Star. And he was an All-Star this season. This was his, his uh, second All-Star bid after making it previously uh, the year before in Indiana. So even though Chris Webber has kind of fallen off a cliff this season, somehow the, the combination of Peja Stojakovic and Brad Miller, who averaged 14 and 10 this year with, with four and a half assists to his credit, uh, those guys somehow combined to make the all-star game. Oh my yeah. God. I mean, Brad, Brad Miller was, was a decent center in his, in his prime. Uh, KG would have probably given like $10 million to be able to swap out his centers for Brad for a bunch of Brad Millers. But uh, yeah. yeah, him making multiple all-star teams is probably the biggest thing you've mentioned so far that illustrates just how watered down the talent was at this stage. He's going Fu Manchu goatee in this game as well uh, with, with his typical headband armband and every single player, I think with the exception of Trenton Hassel, every single player is wearing low socks, which is if you've watched any, you know, if you watch, oh, yeah, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's really appalling to watch because everybody now at the very least you're wearing the mid cut socks or the crew socks. And it seems like 70% of players are wearing the tights that, that go down over the calves. Right. And that, that, that technology was still years off. You know, we, we had not, that was not introduced yet. This is a hallmark of the early 2000s all-star games, too. Low, low, sock, uh, low socks, pretty, pretty bad shoes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> pretty bad jerseys. Chris Weber is wearing dad-ass shoes. Yep, yep. This is, this is the, the dad-ass shoes. Uh, yeah, that see dubs. Uh, James, are you saying you don't like the Timberwolves jerseys? Are you out on no, those? No, 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 no. The Timberwolves jerseys are awesome. Those, those okay. Ones, uh, those ones, weirdly, I don't, I don't even know how. I think they might have gotten created just early enough, like late 90s, just in time to kind of avoid uh, the horrible jerseys of the 2000s. But yeah, the T-Wolves should actually probably consider yes. going back to those. Yeah, yes, no as well as the court that's lined with pine trees all the yeah. way around. I think that this is a, a great, great visual look for for this game. I, I will say I think Sacramento's jerseys are on the decline at this point. They're they're pretty close to what they wore for most of the early decade, but they went through a mini reband and kind of kind of dumbed them down. Like if you if you look at if you Google like Vladi Divac 2001 versus 2004, like their early 2000s jerseys, I thought were much cooler. Yeah, that I mean they. Never really had great jerseys, uh, but wow. they, they definitely have gotten worse with each ensuing season. I took a couple notes on the armband situation. So Doug Christie is wearing an armband on his leg, which is something I'll admit I tried for a little bit in fifth and sixth grade. <laughs> kind of constricting. Uh, Irvin Johnson, double bicep bands, customized, that say E. Johnson on them. Brad Miller also has a custom number 52 and uh, so we talked about that a little bit on the last podcast, James. I, I think we're just kind of entering the, the peak era of 
sweatbands. You know, there's custom, no sleeves. Custom bands. Right, custom bands, which was, again, that, that was peak technology at the time. <laughs> we, we had not yet reached the, the point where we were able to produce leg sleeves and arm sleeves. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't, I'm not as much of a uh, armband aficionado as, as you are. So uh, I don't have much to add, but it, it definitely, definitely takes me back. All right. Let's get into the game itself. Uh, a lot to talk about here. Uh, like we said, I, I, I kind of took my notes in chronological order. So it starts with KGB or uh, Sam Cassell being extremely banged up, extremely aggressive early on. Uh, we should know, too, this is KG's 28th birthday, which is a running theme throughout this game. Um, and it, it was a game that was controlled by Minnesota early on. And really for the entire first half, uh, Minnesota is in in full control. Neither team is shooting well. Sacramento, in particular, was terrible early on. I, I think they started like 9 for 31 from the field. Um, and it was a couple Mike Baby threes, a, a couple key shots from from Doug Christie, keeping them in this. And, and like we mentioned, the, the Chris Weber old man game, it seemed like every time he was scoring, it was over KG, which which made it a little more impressive. You know, I think KG was maybe overplaying him a little bit, knowing that he had such an advantage, movement wise, athletically, that that he was kind of going for a lot of these these old man ball fakes that that Chris Weber was making. But um, what, what what stuck out to you guys in the first half of this game? Well, I I was kind of surprised they weren't going to see Webb more in the post. You know, I understand they, I mean, he got a lot of, you know, he got a lot of 18 foot jumpers off, but he was having like a good amount of success against KG in the post. I know early in the game, he had this great like face up move on KG where he did like, he had, it was like a two pump fake with a spin move in it. KG bit really hard. So it was surprising that they, they didn't try more offense with him. I know, you know, going one-on-one against KG isn't probably ideal offense, but, um, the Kings also scored 31 points in the first half, so nothing they were doing was ideal offense. It it seemed to me like a lot of the – I just don't know if they were all tired. I mean, the, they had been on – like, as you said, this was like their fourth or fifth year in a row going somewhat deep into the playoffs, and the, a lot of the guys on the team were pretty old, but uh, just did not have much burst at all. Like, Peja looked bad, Bibby, C-Web just weren't moving that well um so yeah I, I mean they were missing shots but they yeah i thought the one guy who actually played pretty well i thought from start to finish uh was doug christie uh yeah. i haven't mentioned him yet and i was actually it, i it came back to me after they said it on the team but i forgot that he had made four all defense teams uh but he he was playing pretty well on both ends um yeah, I mean, C-Web, I, I think it. the more they had tried to go to C-Web in the post, I think the, the less KG would have been biting on that stuff and the more ugly rejections we might have seen because all KG had to do was just not do anything until he saw the ball leave Weber's hands and he could have swatted it. It, it did seem like C-Web kind of had to pick his spots and they, they certainly weren't making a point to get to him or get the ball to him. Uh, I do want to go back to Doug Christie because... He's one of the guys that certainly isn't a central figure, I guess, but he was a staple of a lot of good teams around this time. He he had kind of a bad run in Toronto after he started uh, started out in L.A., went to New York for a year, and ends up on some pretty bad Raptors teams around the millennium. But but really kind of comes into his own for Sacramento, and you know is is a guy that starts almost every single game of their run from 2000 through to 2004. Uh, who is his? Does he remind you of anyone? 
in the modern NBA, it, it's kind of hard to prorate the numbers. But I mean, he was a guy who, like you said, an, an all-time great defender at the time, a guy who was over two steals a game for for most of his career. Never a great shooter, but but not a guy who is like a Tony Allen, you know, where he's just a complete negative on offense. I mean, do we do we think there is like a massive gap between uh, like peak Matt Barnes and Doug Christie? Like, I, I, I know he, I know he got the four all defense teams, uh, and I know that he picked San Cassell's pocket a couple times in this game, but that's not really saying a ton and. And I just, I don't, I don't know. I can't picture him actually locking up any good perimeter players. Maybe I just, I don't know. I, I should watch more Doug Christie tape. But um, I think he might have been a little overrated with the, those all defense selections and probably a little overrated just by the era and the fact that he was on. This definitely was a period of time where you were just getting rewarded for being on winning teams. And so he was on those all those good Kings teams and, and got rewarded that way. Maybe, maybe like Andre Iguodala, like, I, I don't know. I late, late career, Andre Iguodala. Um, I, I don't know. I can't really think of a good one. Yeah. It's tough. Cause he, he was also a pretty good passer. Like he was kind of low usage as far as a shooter goes, but he was averaging four assists a game also. Yeah. Um, so that was, that's, I think that makes it a harder, a harder comp. The name I, who comes to mind for me is Avery Bradley who Avery, Avery Bradley came up as a point guard and never played a ton of points in the NBA, but that was certainly part of his profile as a recruit. I mean, he was he was number one player in his class at one point and just never really got the opportunity, I guess, to, to play point guard in the NBA, and his assist numbers are, are pretty trash in the league. But I think, like, body style-wise, uh, Christie's a little bit bigger, but both, both slighter. Um, whereas, like, Matt Barnes, to me, is, like, so much more of, like, a four-slash-three, whereas I, I think of Christie as kind of, like, a true shooting guard, maybe small forward. Yeah, I I think of him as more of a three, but uh, yeah, I could see the I could see the every Bradley one. Um, I was thinking maybe but, Danny Green, but I, I don't think he was ever the shooting threat that Danny Green is. Yeah, thirty thirty five percent for his career, and then in these on the Kings runs, it was kind of yeah mid mid to high thirties. Um, actually, Danny Green's probably actually not bad actually. We somehow have not touched on Latrell Sprewell at all. I don't even. I don't even think I've said his name. Yeah, I'm the. I mean, the first note I have on Spree is that you mentioned that KG block where he basically does the the block catch, you know, and yep. just immediately controls it, and then he. Uh, I don't remember the exact leak out, but basically my note is that Spree completely biffs what would have been the coolest play of the game by missing <laughs> the the layup on the other end. He was all over the place uh, on offense, just like flying around and usually missing, but getting to the rim and then just kind of like losing control right before he's about to lay it up. That was that was weird. He had two of those where it looked like he was going to go up to dunk and then his like leg didn't work the way it was supposed to. And then he almost yeah. I mean, he missed he missed the one and then he almost missed a second one. But I think someone I think on that second one, he was kind of getting undercut yeah. and he didn't want to get you know, he didn't want to get undercut. But he made that he one. was. He was so fast with the with yeah. the ball in his hands. Um, very, very, very unique player because he was incredibly fast, but incredibly kind of like out of control and lacking and lacking in skill, but still like not a bad player. Just hey, come on, um, very, very unique player. I 
one thing that comes to mind with Latrell, and this actually is something I've been noticing on all these uh, old games we've been watching, is the lack of arc on a lot of guys' three-point shots back in the day. Like, even, like, like Sam Cassell, who could hit threes, and, like, Spree, who could hit threes. Uh, but really, for all three of these games that we've done, I've just noticed uh, a lot of the arcs on guys' shots were a lot more line-drivey back in the, the early 2000s. A lot I more mean, efficient, some would say. Yeah, <laughs> they got to they got to the hoop quicker. <laughs> I feel like that must have been like a you know a product of shooting mid rangers, but you can get away with shooting more flat. Uh, you know, you just rise up higher and shoot it flat, and then when you try to when you try to expand your shot to three, you just end up still shooting it flat, even though you should be putting more arc on it. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, Spreewell was another guy who. I know we kind of touched on KG who would get defensive rebounds and like, I felt like he should be getting those rebounds and just taking off. And he would often just give it to the point guard who would immediately slow the ball down. I feel like he could have given it to Spreewell who could have just taken off down the court and done kind of like a Russell Westbrook, just out of control, drive at the rim and see what happens sort of thing. <laughs> that That is a great comparison for some of those spree drives. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the type of speed <laughs> and the type of aggression uh, so basically, the entire drive up until the finish, it was exactly like Westbrook. <laughs> yeah, well, and even and even sometimes the finish as well. I would argue. <laughs> yeah. So Spree, as you can tell, Spree was not great in this game. Six turnovers, finishes with 14 points, but he had 61 combined points over the previous two games. He, you know, they end up getting blown out in Game Six, but he has 27 points, five steals in that game, and then in a in a Game Five victory, 34 points, seven rebounds, six assists. Um, so he, I mean, he's still very much uh, a big time contributor and, and easily the third uh, best player on this team behind KG and Sam Cassell. But he only ends up playing one more year in the NBA. I mean, he's he's up there in in terms of age, but you know, didn't really look like even though we're making fun of him for missing all these layups, like it, it didn't look like he was breaking down or anything. I mean, he wasn't the athlete that he was with the Warriors ten years earlier, but not a guy that you're looking at and saying maybe he has one more year left. But uh, I think we all know, you know, what transpired after this. Yeah, it's kind of a shame. Um, I, you you mentioned how like Alex, you wish that KG had uh, taken more of those and, and gone, and like I I just kept thinking he's being. It's almost admirable how unselfish he's being, given how bad his teammates are. Like just how how kind of ingrained in that in him that is to just be a team player. But I look at. Not only was the pace down back then, um, but if if KG had just been playing at like a modern, if the T Wolves had been playing at a modern pace back then, and KG had just like three times a game, if he had just shot instead of passing, and there was a play in this game where the the Timberwolves were about to put it away, I think there was like a minute and a half left, and KG's like eight feet from the hoop, he's wide open, but they they're up five, and he just sees one of his teammates open for three and passes it. And it was just like a bunch of, if, if you, if on all those plays, you just shot instead of passed and it had been a modern pace. I wonder if you'd have been averaging like in the low thirties per game, because he was just incredibly unselfish given how bad his teammates were. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, his numbers, his numbers just at a glance look very similar to Giannis, like, you know, yes. 25 points, yep. to 14 rebounds, five assists. And you'd think that, yeah, if you just sped the pace up, you know, if Garnett was playing in like a box offense, which is obviously like an extreme example, 
him averaging basically 30 and 15 with five assists, not out of the question. And I, I thought of the Giannis. He reminded me a lot of Giannis in the way that he was playing on both ends. And just like the one difference kind of being that Giannis is sort of go-to offensive move is just to kind of drive sort of from the top of the key and just try to get to the rim. Whereas like KG, KG wasn't getting to the rim a lot. Like he, he would finish on like offensive rebounds and he'd finish in transition and stuff, but his bread and butter wasn't like dunking or, or post moves. It was basically just sort of those, those 10 foot jumpers. Um, and that's, that's kind of the one difference between like him and Giannis, just sort of their go-to half court offensive move. But I think everything else uh is really really spot on and i think the the three-point shooting aspect is is pretty comparable too because i think kg would have basically been sort of where Giannis is with his with his three-point shot yeah and i mean one thing that stuck out to me and and kind of thinking about that was in this series he was only averaging six and a half free throw attempts a game you would think someone like as athletic as him you know would be able to get closer to 10 and i understand the Mm -hmm. pace was different but the amount that he, it seemed like he would be able to get to the rim, but instead took a lot of like turnaround, you know, uh, like fadeaway <laughs> mid rangers, which he was incredibly smooth at doing for his height. Um, you know, it, I, I just think if he played in the modern NBA, he would have drove a lot more. I mean, he's at 5.7 free throws for the regular season. So he's, he's actually up, you know, in the postseason. I think that just speaks to, I mean, his free throw rate is the lowest this season of any year of his like actual peak prime, but he was never a guy that, that ever approached, you know, eight, nine free throws per game, let alone double digits. And, you know, he, I think he was, he was a floor spacer for his time. You know, we talked about his lack of three point shot, but he takes a fair amount of mid range jumpers. He's taken a lot of fadeaways. You know, I think that was another difference between him and Giannis is they might catch it in the same spot, but Giannis is doing everything he can to get to the rim. Maybe he's going to draw the foul. Maybe he's going to finish. Like a lot of KG is, you know, kind of take one dribble. He's completely blanketed. But he's so athletic and he can cover so much ground that when he makes his pivot to turn and shoot, it becomes an open jumper. But he's never really in a position to get fouled. Do you, do you guys think he would have been capable of, um, like, let's let's just say, like, if you just took prime KG, like, from this MVP season and put him on the box, like, would would he have been capable of cutting down on the mid-rangers would you want him to cut down on the mid-rangers like what what would be like the perfect offensive version of kg in today's game well two years earlier 2001 2002 he took one and a half threes per game which for the time i think that would probably prorate to taking like three a game in today's nba and he shot it at 32 percent, which is virtually what Giannis is doing right so i think i think he had that part of his game in him if he was pushed to do it and, and that was the only season of his entire career that he averaged more than one three per game. And after that year, it was significantly lower. He basically just stopped trying. Um, so I, I think that was that was an option for him if he had been pushed in that direction. I, I guess I do wonder, I think he can match like 90 to 95 percent of what Giannis does. I, I still think Giannis has another level as a ball handler and as a passer. Like a lot of KG's assists are coming, you know, passing out of a double team or passing out of the deep post, whereas Giannis has that ability to come off a screen or just go one-on-one and kick to the corner, which we don't really see KG doing much of that. Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things where Giannis basically his entire life and even into the NBA, he was kind of trying the people were trying to mold him into a point guard. Whereas I, I don't think that was really the case for Gar- Garnett, although they did trust him 
with that. I mean, late in this game, they had to trust him to be a point guard and bring the ball up. And I thought he was good at that, especially <clears throat> especially being patient with the ball. Um, you know, it was one thing that I was impressed with KG. You know, Cassell was running around like crazy, just over dribbling and, <laughs> and making bad passes. Meanwhile, KG was, you know, at the top of the three-point line playing point guard, like being super patient, not going to make a pass unless it was wide open. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think... I think the the KG version of the Bucks offense would be a lot more post ups because I think I mean KG's jump hook was was pretty good and I'm surprised he didn't go to that more compared to the turnaround but I think you would just saw more post ups and less you know like euro stepping. Yeah, maybe maybe like sort of yeah more post ups and then probably like the corner three probably becomes a part of this yeah. game. Um, yeah. But I, I think. Yeah, I mean, he would be a five. I, my question is just sort right. of, did he have the physical, like, the physicality to be a five? Uh, like, would he have it today? Like, what, did he have it back then? Because, like, they they were rostering three terrible centers uh, to play next to him. And right. so clearly he didn't want to be the five. Um, but he, so was I every other what, team in the league. Right. Yeah. I mean, could they have gotten away with using him as the five? Like you're basically you have Shaq who they lost to anyway. Uh, so having all that that size didn't help them against the Lakers. And then could he really would he really have been punished by too many other guys? I mean, I think him and Duncan always matched up together. So I, I don't really see that as being like a, a huge thing. Like he probably would have fit best as a five during that era he played in and where he was playing the four the whole time. But when they just, if the amount of centers, like if the replacement level centers, the backup centers are as bad as the ones that were on his roster, then I think it's better to just kind of punt on trying to have KG be the four and just try to get a bunch of power forwards to play around him. Yeah. For him, I mean, he was just so skinny at this point that I think they were worried that he was just going to get like bullied by bigger centers, which in you know in the modern NBA, how many you know modern singer like you know or uh, how many like big singers like that are there that would bully KG? And at least KG had the athleticism to still block shots if he got back down pretty far. Um, but I can understand why at the time they kind of wanted him to play power forward. But I agree. I think I think obviously, and this is something that we keep coming back to from this era. If you would just put him at singer and then give him you know quality wings uh, and and some shooting, it would have been a lot better. Do you guys think Giannis is the closest comparison that we have to KG right now in the modern NBA? And it is tough because, it, I mean, he was playing in the league like five years ago. So it's not like we've had, you know, decades and decades of guys come through to compare him to. Um, but I, I think Giannis is up there. I mean, I, I know I brought up uh, Siakam on the last podcast, but there's a little bit of Siakam to, to the way he moves. I think maybe like a smaller, skinnier Anthony Davis in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh AD's AD's a pretty good one too. Uh, I think early AD, right? Um, yeah, AD's. It's impressive how much he's filled out. Uh, mm-hmm. Like wh- where he came into the league, basically as yeah, like kind of the same way that KG came into the league. Maybe maybe KG was a little bit skinnier as a rookie, but uh, yeah, for AD to have bulked up the way he has to the point where he's clearly bigger than KG ever was is, is pretty impressive. So you mentioned. Garnett going up against the likes of Duncan, Shaq, uh, obviously Chris Webber for the prime years of his career in Minnesota. 
I, I wrote down in my notes, was Chris Webber KG's biggest rival? I thought it was Duncan. Because they just kept, they, like, him and Duncan have been compared to each other mm. for their entire lives, basically. And uh, the Spurs were the, you know, the Lakers had that had that run, but the Spurs were there basically the entire time KG was there. I would I would say Duncan was his biggest rival, and I think I remember um, uh, I was listening to some pod where somebody close to KG said that KG thinks his two biggest rivals were Duncan and Rasheed Wallace. Oh, interesting! I didn't even have Sheed on the list, but yeah, I could see that, especially probably a little bit later. Yeah, the I think the Duncan. Uh, Duncan makes sense because of the longevity aspect. I mean, they both played for so long and basically through the exact same years and we're both on great teams for their entire and career. We're, and we're always kind of kind of competing for accolades. Like they were yeah. They played yeah. like the same position. They were in the same conference. They were both defensive studs. Like, you know, they just sort of are natural rivals from that standpoint. And like, I think it's fascinating to think about like, how would we think about those two players differently if Kevin Garnett spent his whole career with the Spurs and Tim Duncan was drafted by the Timberwolves? Like, I just think it would be really, really interesting to see, like, how many titles do the Spurs end up winning? Mm-hmm. Does do the Timberwolves just continue to flounder the way they did with, with KG? It's just uh, you, you take one guy from... Like Tim Duncan always just gets labeled as this one one of the greatest winners of all time, you know that type of thing. Uh, but he he went to basically the best situation anyone's ever gone to as a number one overall pick. And KG, like I think it's it's not hyperbole to say the Timberwolves have been the worst franchise in NBA history, and he spent almost his entire prime with them. So I think it's just a yeah. fascinating uh, contrast. Yeah, and it's worth noting, you know, talking about the Spurs, the Spurs and the Lakers had won the previous five titles combined going into this season. And of course, the Pistons end up beating the Kobe, Shaq, Malone, Peyton Lakers in the finals. But over a 12 year span from, I guess, what, 99 through like 2009 or whatever, the, whatever the math would be on that over a 12 year span, the Spurs and the Lakers won nine out of the 12 titles. That's pretty incre- incredible. Yeah, and Garnett, of course, got one of those uh, in there with with Boston. But, um, you know, I, I think the one thing that maybe prevented me from from saying Duncan would be the automatic rival is it, it just seemed like even though those guys were comparable as individual players, like I, I don't think the Spurs saw the Timberwolves as a team they needed to get by. You know, they were they were 8-0 against the Timberwolves in, in Garnett's playoff career in Minnesota. Yeah, but if that's your if that's your criteria, then I don't think he has a rival because I don't think any team saw the Timberwolves as a team they need to get by. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe his rival is like Antonio McDice. His his rival, his, no, well, no, his, his rival is uh, is the owner, um, Glenn Taylor. Glenn, Glenn Taylor, yeah, his, his rival is Glenn Taylor. Oh man, so I have some notes on on how this roster came to be for really for both teams. Um, so how, how Latrell Sprewell made his way to Minnesota. So in the summer of 2003, the Timberwolves get their hands on 33-year-old Latrell Sprewell as part of a four-team deal. It seems like when we look back at these trades back then, like every team or every deal was a four-teamer and like multiple meaningless role players are just being tossed around. Uh, but this one involved Atlanta, Philly, New York, and Minnesota. The big dog was involved. Keith Van Horn 
was involved. Terrell Brandon's contract was involved. Uh, the previous offseason, Latrell Sprewell, who was described in an article I read as the most popular player in New York, he, he had kind of broken the levy, I, I think, with the Knicks. Uh, after a series of more minor missteps, he showed up to training camp in uh, the, the fall of 2002 with a broken hand, did not tell anyone that he had broken his hand, just showed up for practice and was like, hey, I have a broken hand, said that he slipped and fell on his boat and broke his hand while catching himself. It was later revealed that he, in fact, broke his hand, punching out the boyfriend of a girl who puked on his yacht. <laughs> I, I think he should have just gone with that story from, from the jump. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see what's so controversial about that. Well, no, somebody, an unnamed source went to the press and, oh, you mean he should have just said that he punched out yeah, a guy? I, I, oh, yeah. Hey, look, if a guy pukes on my yacht, I, I think <laughs> I'm probably going to punch him in the face. So the day that they traded him, the here's the lead from the article from the New York Times. Quote, the Knicks traded their most popular player, Latrell Sprewell, to the Minnesota Timberwolves last night and obtained often maligned forward Keith Van Horn from the Philadelphia 76ers in a four-team, six-player deal. So Latrell Sprewell ends up retiring after the following season. Like I said, uh, there's an article from, from that offseason. Well, he's basically going back and forth, trying to negotiate like a monster contract that he clearly does not deserve from Minnesota. Uh, and here's a quote from a, an article about that. Asked if he would play out the season and test the free agent market, Sprewell responded, why would I want to help Minnesota win a title? They're not doing anything for me. I'm at risk. I have a lot of risk here. I've got a family to feed. Anything could happen. <laughs> Ends up retiring. Takes no money. What does that, what does that mean? He, was, he like felt some, that he was being lowballed. That's like some Kyrie Irving. If Kyrie Irving retired the exact same way, I would not be surprised. That's like, well, I, I thought of Nerland's Noel, like um, <laughs> tur- turning down that, turning down like that sixty million dollar offer from the Mavs or whatever it was. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, yeah, you probably, I, I don't know what his agent told him, but um, I tend to think his agent probably gave him good advice, and Spree still thought he was getting lowballed. Is it fair to say that he's a little bit underrated in retrospect? Because anytime anyone talks about Sprewell, it's about him choking out his coach. It's about him getting into trouble, punching people on boats, bouncing at bars in Milwaukee. Like he was a first team all NBA player his second year in the NBA. Yeah, and uh made the all defensive team that year too. Four time all star. That's that's pretty wild. I mean, he played on he played on three memorable teams. Uh, yeah. Like he was a key, key piece of like three very memorable teams with the, those like early Warriors, early 90s Warriors, the uh, late 90s Knicks and the early 2000s Timberwolves. And he was basically a top three player on all three of those teams. So, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Actually played with C-Web on that first. I think they only played right. together Spree's C-Web's rookie year. But yeah, that, yeah, that first Warriors team in 92 93. All right, so let's get back to kind of the crux of the game. So Minnesota, you know, as we said, controls the first half, basically immediately blows the lead in the second half, starts playing horrifically, and it's a back-and-forth game kind of within five to seven points for most of the second half. And we've already touched on this a few times, but my, my biggest takeaway from the second half is just how unbelievably erratic Sam Cassell's dribbling, ball handling, distribution, 
I have written down his ball handling rating in 2K would be like a 45. I mean, it was it was unbelievable <laughs> some of the possessions that he had. I I was just thinking like his ball handling reminded me of like if I was playing a video game and I just left my controller alone for like 10 seconds with the guy just dribbling like at the top of the key, you know, like that's he was just dribbling out like 10 seconds of the shot clock for like no purpose and then getting yeah. the ball stolen every time. Uh, he, he was just very close to costing them this game on so many occasions. <laughs> he he had one where he dribbled out the entire shot clock, and I don't even know if he went inside the key. He's he's just kind of like zigzagging around outside of the three-point arc. And thankfully, he's bailed out by a huge Kevin Garnett three at the 340 mark. Somebody else other than Kevin Garnett has got to be able to score here. Sam Cassell has caught once again, winding down. He's going to get himself in trouble over dribbling. Shot clock is down to five. And Miller's got Garnett way outside. Oh, what a shot by Kevin Garnett! Happy birthday. That was awesome. I mean, that was such an unexpected shot. I mean, KG, I think he... Cassell just kind of throws him the grenade with like four seconds left on the shot clock. So KG didn't have much of a choice, but... He takes one dribble and just pulls up. And it, it looked like at first he was going to try to go by. I, I think Brad Miller was on him at the time. And you, you think, I mean, he, he clearly had enough time to get to the hole if he wanted to. And he ends up just canning that three. Um, but then right after that, Sam Cassell, or, or actually, I guess, like two minutes after that, Sam Cassell is just straight up ripped by Doug Christie on a massively important possession late in the fourth quarter. Like you said, James, it's like he's just sitting there with somebody's controller just stuck on idle and nobody's controlling him. He's yeah. just sitting there with his with his guard hand up. And Doug Christie, I wouldn't even say it's a steal. He just lunges yeah, and kind of like grabs the ball. It was yeah, a great it was, play. It was an awesome, like he should have been doing that the whole game. Just dive, dive through <laughs> Cassell's dribble and then like try to pass it to a teammate or something. I mean, it, it was, yeah, that was, that was an amazing sequence. Yeah, it was, it was something. So 150 to play. We'll, we'll kind of run through the ending here. 150 on the clock. Sam Cassell picks up an offensive foul. Ball goes back to Sacramento. Kings down 79-72. So at this point, Minnesota's at home. They're in pretty good shape. It's, it's looking like they're finally going to make it to the Western Conference Finals. Mike Bibby hits a three on the wing. That makes it 79-75. Brad Miller, Mike Bibby for three. And the Kings to within four with 140 to play in regulation. KG turns it over on the other end. Really bad turnover. One of the, one of the low moments for KG in this game, kind of drives across the lane and just kicks it out to nobody. Ball lands in like the seventh row. On the other end, Kings end up getting a very good look uh, on a drive by C-Webb and a really nice pass to Brad Miller. He is absolutely annihilated by Irvin Johnson. And Miller knocked away with another jump ball. Irvin Johnson with the defense. See, just subtle little things. It looked like Brad Miller had a layup and Irvin Johnson got beat off the dribble. He didn't stop playing. Garnett came over to help him. And then he came over to help Garnett. That's good team defense. Somehow, Brad Miller ends up forcing one of two jump balls in like a one-minute span. Uh, so Minnesota wins the jump ball, immediately turns it back over, which leads to a Chris Webber layup uh, that was missed. That was the one that we talked about earlier. Uh, just a, That was like kind of the ultimate sad C-Web play during the sequence. It's Bibby in the lane and scooping it to Webber. And missing from point-blank range. Oh, what a miss. That is a killer. I, I felt like it was one of those situations where he was anticipating contact 
And then when it didn't come, he just completely like whiffed the layup. And you can see him, uh, like I think he says, dang it, really loud or something. Like maybe like slaps his hand. Like he knows like how bad of a miss it was, and he knows yeah. how crucial of a play it was, and it just just made it all the more sad. A little reminiscent of the Tim Duncan, Shane Battier miss in twenty oh, in man. the twenty thirteen finals. You know where I think I think. Tim Duncan was more mad at himself. There's no question it was not a foul in that game. But I think this one, whether whether he genuinely believed it or not, I thought Chris Webber was screaming about a foul. But you're right, James. You can hear the audio of him yelling over the TV audio. Yeah, I didn't. So I almost thought it was um, like maybe he sort of was thinking about dunking it. It sort of looked like it was one of those where he almost went up thinking about dunking and then realized he wasn't going to be able to dunk it and tried to switch to a layup or something like he comes down. I think it was the highest he'd gotten off the ground the entire game. And he's in just immense pain. Like he's walking with a huge limp after that too. Like, uh, yeah, just, just really ugly sequence. So at this point we have 50 seconds left in the game. It's still 79, 75 in favor of Minnesota. This is when the Sam Cassell, I don't even know how to describe it. The play we just talked about, the, the Doug Christie diving steal uh, happens. Cassell basically just dives on top of Doug Christie and then oh. is obviously called for a foul, like just wrestles him essentially on the ground. Fouls called with 45 seconds left. Minnesota still up four. So it's King's ball. And this sets up maybe the play of the game by, by Kevin Garnett. And Kevin Garnett has taken the steal. And he stepped... Out of bounds because he was shoved, moving into the defense of Stojakovic, who picks up his fourth foul. With 33 seconds left, he's guarding Brad Miller on the left wing, and Miller's trying to to get a pass in to somebody at the elbow. KG just reads it perfectly, steals it, pushes the ball up court, ends up getting fouled. Yeah, that was that was a really good play. Um, there was a play earlier in the game where you know how KG is famous for when there's a dead ball, like players will just get a shot up and then he like always makes a point of like not letting it get to the rim and and going up and catching it there was a play earlier in the game where brad miller was shooting a layup during a dead ball and kg just swatted the crap out of it like yes on a dead ball and that that made me very happy but yeah th- this play was uh i mean he was that's that's what i'm talking about with just his defensive impact where it, you don't it doesn't just show up in just just the blocks or just um just the rebounds or anything like he was just uh, such a force, such a menace in the half court on defense because of how long he was, how fast he was, how much he was competing. Like you just, even if he wasn't on you, he was a threat to, to make a play on that play. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about when he swatted that ball away from Brad Miller. My first thought was you're probably getting teed up. If you do that now, you're at least getting yeah. to play a game and they didn't even acknowledge it. No. Uh, so so after the steal, KG, uh, it's essentially kind of a clear path type of situation. This is this is well before clear path fouls exist, but he gets fouled as he's kind of you know barreling his way up court. Hits one of two, Minnesota up 80 to 75 with 31 seconds left. Mike Bibby pushes the ball up, immediately gets fouled on the other end, hits both. So 80-77 Minnesota with, with 27 seconds to play. Minnesota gets the ball inbounds. Uh, Latrell Sprewell, after like running around for a while, uh, ends up getting fouled. And I, I don't know if you guys agree with me on this. I thought he wanted no part of shooting those free throws. And, and Doug Collins seemed to agree. Now, this is going to be interesting because Sprewell has missed some critical free throws late in games. 
tonight. He is 0 of 1. No, because after after he shot them, he was like jumping around. I don't even know how yeah. to explain it. Yeah. I've never like I don't know if you but when you said he didn't want it, Waylon, I don't know if you I don't know if you meant like before he got to the line, but you could totally tell when he was at the line he didn't want to be at the line because he has a release, like I think his release on the first one, he's super nervous about it. Like you could just sort of tell like how much he's living and dying with each of these attempts. Just very, very uncomposed. So Spree hits the first, rattles it home. Uh, you just know he's missing the second, which he does. Okay. Kings yeah. get the board. Bibby pushes it the other way. This is at the point that Fred Hoiberg, for some reason, is in the game. You had a chance to sub him out. This is a you know offense defense classic offense defense situation. You have two free throws, plenty of time. He's in the game. He completely loses Doug Christie during this time. He du- he doubles Mike Bibby, who's being guarded by Spreewell. And it looks like Spree's just going to let him take the layup, which most, you know, in this situation with under 20 seconds left, you'll give up the two, whatever. Don't commit the foul. Uh, but but Fred Hoiberg just completely leaves his man to go double, leaves Doug Christie wide open at the top of the key. Uh, he hits a three. That makes it 81-80 Minnesota with 16 seconds to play. It's a miss, and it's a four-point game. Bibby. Christie for three, and it's a one-point game with under 17 seconds to play in a Minnesota timeout. Doug Christie with a Kings high 21 points. I had a note that uh, Fred Hoiberg, just just watching him play this game, like I have no memories prior to re-watching this game of Fred Hoiberg's playing career, but just from watching this game, my note was, does not look like head coaching material because he just... He made so many plays where it's just like, that's not what a future coach would do. <laughs> it's also remarkable how much he looks like his current self in this game. Like he, he looks like he's going to coach the Chicago Bulls like five days after the series ends. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he actually might've been in better shape as a coach than he was as a player. <laughs> uh, so Sam Cassell ends up hitting a pair of free throws. Yeah. At this point we're, we're in the full on foul mode. 83-80 to 80 Minnesota uh, after those two from Sam Cassell. Uh, and that sets up a, a pretty wild end-of-game sequence for Sacramento. Christian to top. Caught by Miller. Rejected by Garnett. So huge, huge block. Uh, this is, I don't, I don't know what number this is for Garnett at this point, um, but another massive emasculating block on Brad Miller. Uh, I guess it would have been his fifth of the game. He, he finished with five. Um, 32-21, five blocks, four steals, two assists, by the way, for Garnett in this game. So certainly a kind of a career-defining game seven for him. This sets up Kings ball inbounding deep in the corner. I Something that struck me at this point is, like, does the NBA even allow guys to inbound from that spot anymore? Like, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone inbound from that deep in a sideline corner. Like, usually you just reset it and it goes you know, to the baseline or to half court. But for some reason, uh, Doug Christie is inbounding the ball like as far in the corner as he possibly can. Uh, their first play they set up, Peja ends up running directly to the inbounds pass. And, you know, Christie tries to get it to him from like six inches away, deflected out of bounds. They end up going to an extended replay, 2.2 seconds left on the clock. Uh, and that sets up the final opportunity for the Kings to tie the game. They've got 2-2 two, two on there now. So they bought three tenths of a second. Weber for the tie, and the Minnesota Timberwolves are going to the Western Conference Finals. 
Yeah, I mean that that pass attempt into like what was going to happen with that pass attempt into Peja, like in the corner. Like, was he just going to like turn around and launch it? Like that. I and every other every other Kings player is literally like on that, that side of the key. Like, there's five Kings players within like four feet of each other. So I don't. I mean, I guess it was it was just pure desperation, but nothing good was going to come out of that pass. It was. Yeah, if you can contrast the two plays, like they're lucky that it worked out the way it did because it, it's almost like that first play set up the, the play that got Seaweb the open yeah. look. Uh, I mean, the, the pass to Seaweb, that play was was genius because it got him a wide open look that almost tied the game. Yeah, Minnesota clearly was way overplaying Stojakovic, who's coming off of uh, a double screen kind of just ahead of the free throw line, right at the nail. It looks like he's going to kind of curl around and get a three. And it, the the way that it's cut on TV, um, like they, uh, they're showing something off camera. I think they were just showing shots of the crowd for some reason in Minnesota. And all of a sudden it cuts and like the ball is being inbounded right away. So we don't we don't have a great look at how Minnesota is setting up defensively, but it looks like. Garnett is kind of freelancing like he's just like in the middle of the court ready to double Stojakovic or pick off a pass or whatever it might be and Chris Webber sets one of the screens for Stojakovic and just kind of casually fades to the opposite wing and I mean KG's able to recover in time to, to contest but nice little ball fake from Chris Webber gets a wide open look really at this point Garnett is kind of behind him he, he overran Webber and goes in and out um, and again you could tell I mean obviously Minnesota's celebrating right away but Weber sinks to the floor right away. Bibby sinks to the floor. And, you know, we, that's kind of been one of the themes that we've talked about throughout the pod. But I, I think that was really, truly the final nail in the coffin for for this era of Kings basketball and, and really that era of Chris Weber's career. The, I mean, Timberwolves got a little lucky with that one. I mean, Weber got a good shot off. I think it hit the inside of the rim twice before bouncing out. I mean, I think, I think the Wolves would have still won the game in overtime, but uh, that would have been... That was very close to uh, to going in. They also got lucky that Brad Miller, for some reason, tried to put back up that offensive rebound right. when they were down three. Like, I don't know what he was thinking there. Like, that's a clear. I'm sure somebody was open, whether it was Bibby or Christie or whoever. He could have kicked it out. I mean, they got lucky there too. I, I have that same thing in my notes. Like, I, I think he. I think he probably just didn't know how much time was left or didn't know what the score was. Like there was no reason to put that back up. And I mean, there's an argument to be made that Garnett blocking it was almost the wrong play. And, you know, in the moment you're never going to tell someone to, to block a, a wide open layup, but you know, I mean, I, I think they are kind of lucky that they even ended up getting that, that second opportunity in the first place. How do you think the, do you think this Kings team would have gotten beat by the the Lakers in that oh, Western yeah. conference finals? Yeah. I, I think so for sure. I, I kept finding myself wondering like how the Kings won so many games in the regular season, how they got by Denver so easily in the first round. To me, it it makes sense because they just, they were just deep with NBA caliber players. Like a lot of these games we've been watching, it's we're just commenting on how well they only went like four players deep. They only went three players deep. Like the Kings actually had like six or seven quality rotation players, which Apparently, in this era, was enough to, to separate yourself from the pack. But someone else we haven't mentioned, by the way, is Bobby Jackson, who was on this team and was a really good role player for a long time. You know, around you know, kind of the 2000 to 2006 uh, area, and you know, he played played most of the regular season uh, and ended up getting hurt just before the playoffs, and then was unavailable. So that was another another key guy who 
was the sixth man of the year the previous season. Um, you know, just a really strong role player uh, who they didn't end up having. So at the end of the day, I mean, we've kind of we've kind of joked about how bad this Minnesota roster is outside of the top three. But I mean, for Sacramento to even get to a game seven on the road with the amount of injuries and kind of old age uh, on this roster was pretty impressive. And with like what what would have been different if like what if Page had just shot the way he shot in the regular season or or like even just kind of close to that during these yeah. playoffs it might not have even gone seven what if they had played gerald wallace <laughs> a couple more notes from the end of this game the timberwolves last field goal in a game that they won came with 340 remaining in the game from there on out they missed everything it was just free throws um and kg and sam cassell scored 20 of minnesota's 21 fourth quarter points kg at one point had 13 points in a row I I don't know how Sam Cassell got those points, Uh, but I think he also did just as much damage (laughs) turning the ball over. He had that one play where it was like a transition thing, and he just pulled up for three. Like, (laughs) do you you remember he like buried a three in transition? Unbelievable! (laughs) That was such a like that was a huge shot. (laughs) He just playing terribly, and he buried that three. Yeah, I uh, I have a couple of notes on things that that aged well or did not age well, and every single one uh, for this game in particular is on the did not age well side of things. Uh, number one, the repeated Radio Shack advertisement courtside that kept popping up in the, the whatever those things are called that kind of rotate ads um, right in the view of the TV camera. Not great. Uh, after the game, the the camera just kind of starts showing crazed wolves fans around the arena and i tweeted out a video of my favorite one yesterday so so check twitter for that but right before they show that guy they zoom in on a man in a timberwolves shirt and a puka shell necklace which at the time <laughs> probably really cool james did you ever own a puka shell necklace um i did so i owned a necklace that was in the definitely in the same um like ballpark as a, as a it wasn't hookah shells but it was like that same general idea okay fair so, enough i did as well i, 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 don't, I don't know if i ever actually owned one but i definitely wanted one i was a aspiring puka shell owner i, I bought it I, it was an american eagle uh, i bought it at an american eagle probably in the in the early 2000s so definitely i think it qualifies okay fair i have a couple notes uh both involving kevin garnett and both things that are a little bit unsavory and probably would have been well one of them at least would have been significantly significantly worse had it happened today but earlier in the series kg had to issue a public apology after saying the following when he was asked about you know what his mindset is for game seven here's this quote this is it it's for all the marbles i'm sitting in the house loading up the pump i'm loading up the uzis i got a couple of m16s couple of nines couple of joints with some silencers on them couple of grenades got a missile launcher i'm ready for war <laughs> you really went full out with that analogy. See, so you don't you you do not think that aged well. I don't think that aged well. <laughs> although I think so, the article that I read, you know, is just like a general newser on Garnett apologizes for remarks. It, it mentioned uh, like nine eleven and the the Afghanistan Iraq War and all that. So I, I think in in two thousand four, that was still. I mean, we're three years removed from nine eleven, but it. I guess back then that was still like 
extra controversial just because we were maybe in more of like a general wartime mindset. I don't, I don't, I don't really remember. I was a little too young, I think, at that time. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I thought you might have been going somewhere else with something KG might have said that didn't age well. Well, um. <laughs> well, no. See, so the other thing that I think aged somehow even worse than that uh, was not not something KG said, but it was something that was said to KG uh, by then rookie Francisco Elson. Oh man! So it in the fir- in the first round of the playoffs, uh, uh, KG allegedly caught Francisco Elson with an elbow, uh, an elbow to the groin area, and Elson had the following to say: "That's a cheap shot by a low class type player. You don't do that. That's gay on his part. I told him he was gay too for touching my private parts." <laughs> oh my God, yeah. dude! That's yeah. very that's very uh, early two thousands late 90s nba right there <laughs> yeah i'm just wondering like how loudly did he say that 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 someone picked up on it or did he say it maybe this quote is like two reporters after the game that's almost what it sounds like which is even crazier <laughs> it very well could have been and and not not crazy by uh by that era's standards right uh there was also right after the game ended i, I think it was like the first shot after after chris weber misses they show Kevin Garnett like running either to like go meet up with teammates or he's just celebrating and right away it cuts to him and all you hear is him shouting. God damn it! <laughs> I don't know if, I don't know if you guys watched deep enough for that. I did. Game Ops played Celebrate Good Times right after the final buzzer. Really got the people buzzing. Um, and the only other note I have is that Michael Olowokandi was on this Timberwolves team, as was Gerald Wallace. And uh, Wallace especially is somebody obviously he didn't factor into the game didn't didn't enter the game um he's on the bench for sacramento but uh a guy who i, I would love to get into the rotation to watch a, a peak gerald wallace game at some point over these next few weeks gerald wallace was awesome for i mean he he had a pretty short prime i would say but like he was he was incredible like especially defensively there was a year that got cut short by injury where uh he averaged two and a half steals and 2.1 blocks per game uh, which is insane to think about now. I mean, he's he's somebody that I think probably came along just a little too late to really help this team. I mean, he he barely played his first couple of years in the league, came in as a 19-year-old. And, you know, his rookie year was kind of like the Kings' last truly good year. Um, but it, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened with him had he not gone to Charlotte. He ends up with the Bobcats the following year as an expansion draft loss. So like the, the, it was kind of out of the Kings' control. You know, obviously they could have protected him. I guess. Um, but, you know, there's an alternate universe where he ends up being a, a really useful player for teams that are actually decent and not just like wasting the entirety of his prime in, you know, with these teams in Charlotte that we're not doing anything. All right, what do you guys have? Anything else in your notes? There was a KG dunk where he faced up on Chris Weber on the right wing and he crossed over Chris Weber and Chris Weber like froze in place. Uh, and then KG rises up, drives baseline, rises up, goes for a huge dunk. And Bibby comprises those two positions for Sacramento. Well, he just crossed over and left Chris Webber standing in his wake. Nobody on the weak side to help. Kevin Garnett is taking over this game. As an MVP should do. Exactly right. One of the announcers notes that Brad Miller did not come over to play help defense or no one played help defense. Uh, so I looked back and watched the clip 
and I've seen this, I've seen the dunk before, uh, but I never noticed that Irvin Johnson literally just grabs Brad Miller, I think with both arms by one of his arms and just pulls him just totally just yanks Brad Miller out of the play and the refs don't see it. Um, so shout out to Irvin Johnson for allowing that play to happen. That is probably his best play of the game. I think so. Easy. Actually, I think that, that was clearly his best play of the game because he didn't have any other good points. I mean, he didn't score. <laughs> Wait, he didn't have a single point in, you said he played like 27 minutes. I think he played 29 minutes. I know he didn't have a field goal. It, I guess did he did he sneak a free throw in there somewhere? I know he was 0 of three from the field. Um, all, all I know is that it it would just be laughable for someone as bad as Irvin Johnson or Mark Madsen or Gary Trent to play in a game seven yeah. uh, in the playoffs, and and somehow all three of them managed to do so in the exact same game. Irvin Johnson was drafted at age 26. <laughs> I I, what? Yeah, I mean, I'm seeing like, you know, when you look at the year by year breakdown, he's 26 his rookie year. This is not a situation where he like played overseas for a few years. Like, no, he was drafted in 1993 at age 26, debuted in 1993 at age 26. He I, was know, a 22 year old freshman in college. So I think like there, there's a lot of sort of old school NBA fans who kind of bemoan the fact that there's not much post play anymore. But I mean, I really think, you know, watching bad centers play basketball is probably the the least appealing thing to watch about basketball. And I think not having to watch bad centers play basketball anymore is, is very nice. And there's, there's definitely room for you to be a dominant post scorer in the NBA today. Like that there's, you know, Carl T. Towns, uh, Joel Embiid, really dominant post scorers, really good players. But short of that, four. yeah, like you, the, there's no more Urban Johnsons getting 29 minutes per game anymore. And I no. think that we should all agree that that's a good thing. Who was the last Urban Johnson legacy in the NBA? Kendrick Perkins? Ooh, yeah, who's grandfathered into being a bad right. center. Uh, I don't know, man. Bismack Biombo is still getting pretty good ooh, run. That's, that's true. A Although, like, with Bismack, at least there was, like, this athleticism component where he didn't really... Like, nobody was ever dumping it down to Bismack Bayabo to post up. Like, he, he could just kind of be athletic and block some shots. Like, Perkins had none of that. Irvin Johnson had none of that. Kendrick, yeah, Kendrick's, Kendrick's a really good one because he not only was playing fairly recently, but he was, he was playing minutes on, like, some high-profile, like, championship aspiration teams. And yeah. that that makes it that makes it worse. I mean, sadly, Okafor is in the discussion here. At least at the time he was drafted, he's he's kind of transformed himself a little bit. But at the time he was taken, he was very much the 1998 center mold. Does Udonis Haslam still is he still on the roster? No, he has not. He has not met the minimum requirements. Okay, I, he's still technically a Miami Heat player. Oh yeah, isn't he? yeah. I just mean to qualify for this discussion. Oh, I mean, yeah, when's, when's the last time he's he's topped like a thousand minutes? Uh, 2012, 13, according to this. Okay. Yeah, has not I mean, topped a hundred minutes for the past three seasons. <laughs> he should keep doing this as long as he can. Like he, nothing I mean, is being John, asked of him at all. John Henson's still in the NBA. <laughs> oh man, yeah, but he shoots threes now. That was oh, no. oh, yeah, okay. 
Uh, all right. Um, the only other thing I have that I haven't crossed out on my sheet yet is early in the first quarter, I, I wrote down the time if you want to go back. With 10.33 left in the first quarter, the camera pans and does a wide shot from like the upper deck and just kind of slowly focuses on the court. And as it's doing that, you can see a man in a Curtis Martin Jets jersey at the game. Uh, nice. <laughs> go Jets. <laughs> just a neutral observer. <laughs> Okay, well, I think if you guys have nothing else, that'll wrap it up, right? Yeah, yeah. That's all, all right. I got. All right, fantastic. Well, we will have more pods coming this week. Uh, we still have plenty to say about the NBA horse competition from this past weekend, which uh, unfortunately continues later this week and wraps up on Thursday. Um, if you haven't looked at it already, it's been up for a couple weeks, but if you are starving for fantasy basketball content, Alex and I put up our early top 150 for next season uh that, that's still up on the site make sure to go find that we have some new features um including a historical fantasy database that's a lot of fun to check out um so so be sure to give that a look alex you finished up your 30 teams 30 days series yesterday uh yeah it was either yesterday or the day before and i finished up with washington uh yes yeah it did Quite a uh, interesting. It was an interesting finish for sure. Yeah, well, thank you for your service and in, in writing about the Wizards and James. You guys, you and Clay are kind of locked in like a battle of the bands right now on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we're I think we're gonna get bounced. But if uh, if anyone's listening to this uh, before like I think it's like eight p.m. or seven p.m. or something and has time to go vote, that'd be great. But yeah, I think it, our run might come to an end in the Elite Eight. Yeah, I saw that. What what is this? What podcast is it that's giving you guys trouble right now? Um, I've never I've never listened to it, but I know uh, the the main host guy is a, is a really good fantasy baseball player. So I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a good podcast. But okay. uh, well, I, we won't dignify it by mentioning so, it on yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, make sure to do that. That's uh the the Twitter account at Baseball Pods uh, has been running this bracket. Um, for the last several days and uh, we'd love to get the road to wire MLB pod which I mean frankly has really taken off over the last couple of years and especially this past year behind you and Clay uh, at the helm so go vote for road to wire MLB four hours left to do that as we record and, and hopefully you guys are able to pull through This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.